the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 304 Premium for December 16th, 2010. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. Here from Durham, New Hampshire, I am Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, I am John F. Braun. And here in Durham, New Hampshire, I am Pilot Pete. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> of course. Uh, and thanks to all of you listeners for not just listening, but subscribing and uh, and supporting us in, in this additional way. We, uh, we certainly appreciate the opportunity to continue to do these premium shows for all of you, those of you who've been here for a while, and those of you who are new to the uh, premium thing. So thank you very much. Uh, John, we've got a good show today. Uh, the, if the pre-show prep is any indication, uh, what I thought was going to be, uh, you know, a relatively lightweight show technically may not be lightweight at all, technically. So that's uh, and of course, that's up to you folks to decide because you're the ones that send in these questions and some great tips, too. So anything to uh, anything to discuss here, John, before we dive into the, the questions, any new products or anything, or you're, you're still in the evaluation phase on all this stuff. Uh, new things that I'm looking at. I don't know. Yeah. Just anything. You, nothing. Right. We're, we're, we're good to dive in. Oh, no. Well, I got a few things in the pipe, but it's going to take a little while here. Yeah. The two notable ones. And then we'll dive into the show here. So, so I did get a um, Samsung SSD. Yeah, you, I think you mentioned that last show. Yeah. Yeah, or the last page. Uh, so I'm working my way through evaluating that. And then uh, another thing I have, which is kind of neat, um, Clear makes a little 3G. I just got this out of the blue one day, a 3G, 4G uh, USB modem, I guess you call it. Oh. And uh, yeah, I just got it one day. You know, like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, for members of the media, which I, I guess we are in a there sense. There you go. Yeah, um, You know, give this thing a, a whirl. And so I plugged it in and it didn't do 4G and I'm like, yeah. And then I look at the coverage map and then all of a sudden I plugged it in a couple days ago and all of a sudden the 4G lit up and getting some sweet throughput. So I got to try it in a couple of different places. And, uh, and the signal strength meter said, perfect. Huh? I've never seen that because yeah. I have a cell tower right down the street from me. So I That's bet good. you I know where, where yeah. it is. So, um, cool. But it's a, uh, yeah, it gives some really, really nice speeds. I got to try it in, in other areas and, uh, you know, maybe bring it with me to Macworld. Cool. Um, but yeah, great. Uh, should be some reviews of those. Um, great. Um, I'm trying to think of what I have. Oh, I uh, I just started working with a Drobo FS, which is the five bay uh, Drobo with a built in gigabit Ethernet port. In fact, it's only gigabit Ethernet now. There's no Firewire or, or anything like that. It's it's its own device, but it's got some cool stuff. I'm not I'm not like you with, you know, with your stuff. I'm not quite ready to to give a full review or even a partial but uh but it does some cool stuff so i'm looking forward to that and then uh, i've got this saved up for our next cool stuff found show but the uh the casemate venture case for the ipad i'm pretty sure that's what it's called i don't have it sitting in front of me here uh is awesome it's not cheap i think they want about 90 bucks for the thing um but it's leather it it looks great it feels great uh, the way that it uh, it folds open and it's its own stand in a couple of different ways. It, it's a really sharp looking thing. So if any of you are out there looking for a uh, Christmas gift, either for a, a loved one, a good friend or, you know, yourself, because there's nothing wrong with buying something, wrapping it and putting it under the tree from uh, from yourself to yourself. Uh, this is this is certainly something to take a look at. But uh, but I, I like it. It 
it's, it's sharp. It's sharp. So for those are, those are the things on my mind. I guess it's time to talk about what Mark has on his mind. Yes, John. Absolutely. All right. Mark writes, I have a four plus year old original Mac pro with all four hard drive bays filled. The boot drive is the original 250 gig drive that came with the machine. I do a nightly clone of that drive to another internal drive with carbon copy cloner. I also do time machine backups at four hour intervals. Thanks to time machine editor. I've been intending for some time to replace that original drive with something newer and larger. And that intention has been reinforced lately. And that I'm noticing that when I do a restart, my machine sometimes elects to boot off the clone instead of the main drive without any prompting from me. That seems odd. The smart status of my original boot drive says verified. I also do fairly regular maintenance sessions with Onyx. Here is the workflow I intend to use for replacing this drive. Number one, make sure I have an up to the minute backup and clone. Smart. Uh, number two, reboot from the clone drive. Number three, shut down the machine, remove the original, replace. Number four, boot up from the clone. Uh, Use Carbon Copy Cloner to clone the clone back to the new drive, reboot on the new drive, and set Carbon Copy Cloner to continue the nightly clone of the new drive off to the clone. Uh, and we're going to talk about, he has a question, and, and we're going to get to this. We're going to talk about all this, but uh, we'll get to his question first. He says, my question is, would it be wise or unwise to name the new drive I'm installing identically to the drive I'm replacing? Or is this overthinking, outguessing the OS and will somehow come back to bite me? Uh, as an aside, I, too, have always named my hard drives after songs. Dave, I know yours are Miles Davis. Mine are Grateful Dead. So my boot drive is St. Stephen and the clone is called S. Stephen clone. OK, uh, so to answer your question first, uh, I don't believe it matters what you name the drive. And here's why. Anything that cares about drives in particular, i.e. carbon copy cloner, super duper, you know, anything doing anything to the drive itself uh, is not going to look at the drive name and instead look at the serial number or, or unique ID that is assigned when the partition is created in disk utility. So if you were to wipe out your even if you didn't replace any drives, if you were to wipe out your existing drive and replace it from the clone leaving it with the same name, carbon copy cloner and super duper or any of those would fail because you'd have to repoint it at the drive, even though it's named the same. It, it, I had a similar issue very recently and my current hard drive is called the Duke. And uh, actually, no, it's called miles, miles ahead. I don't know, whatever it's called now, whatever, but whatever it was, the Duke is the one I cloned to. Uh, but uh, it was complaining that, uh, you know, I did exactly what I just described and it said, Oh, I can't find miles ahead to, to clone. I thought, well, that's crazy. It's right there. And I repointed it and then everything was fine. It was using the name to talk to me, but clearly behind the scenes, it was using a serial number for the drive. So, so in that instance, the name doesn't matter. Uh, and then for everything else, it, all your apps are just looking at the root of the drive. Yeah. You might have some problems with, you know, some, some Java apps that are going to look at, you know, slash volumes, slash drive names, slash whatever, uh, but that's going to be few and far between my advice. And well, the practice I have followed with drive names is once a drive gets a name, that name is only for that drive is off the list. I won't use it for any other drive and it keeps me sane. And that way, if I pick up a drive 
uh, you know, that's been sitting on the shelf for a while and I put it in, I know that I'm not going to have two drives with the same name in the computer, even if one is, a, you know, seemingly retired drive. So that that's my feeling on drive names, John. And then I want to get into some of the rest of the stuff he talked about, but let's just drive names. Any thoughts? I'm trying to find the, this, this value you're talking about because I'm, I'm with oh. you. I think the, the name is, a, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what will tell you that. And I, while you were, um, while you were talking, I was I was poking around in different uh, utilities trying to see where that value is. You know, and I, I made the big mistake there that I talked about in the last show. I started doing something while uh, you were talking. And of course, launching disk utility causes all sorts of interrupts. So while everyone could hear you, I apologize for the crackling and popping in your uh, in your voice. I thought I'd seen it in disk utility. Yeah. Oh, no. Hmm. I know I've seen it here before, but I, uh, I can't find it. So, Hmm. It, no, it exists. I think I got it. Okay. I think, I think I have it here. What's that? Uh, there we go. Okay. Boy, we're, we're good. Well, I'm good. No, <laughs> well, I'm usually good. <laughs> no, I just got lucky here. So, so yes, you're correct, Dave. Uh, it, it's not immediately obvious. If you start up this utility. So I see two entries here on my MacBook pro. I see the, the, the name of my drive, it says 500 gigabyte Hitachi, blah, 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 blah. Right. And then underneath that, Macintosh HD. I'm okay. not terribly original with this machine. Sure. Um, what you want to do is to right-click, and I'm going to say right-click, even though I'm not right-clicking. And if you click on the drive, it's then going to bring up a contextual menu. And one of the pieces of information there, or one of the choices is information. Uh-huh. And information lists a whole bunch of things, one of them being universal unique identifier, which is what you mentioned. It's this yeah. big, big monstrously long hex uh, string. Um, so that's uh, if you're curious and there's some other information there. Uh, most of the other information here is, is available elsewhere. Um, but that's where it is. I think disk utility used to show this information in its main view, because mm. I know I've seen it here before, but obviously clearly it's not, uh, it's not that way now. All right. Well, cool. Yeah. So that's the ID that, that a lot of these uh, utility apps use. So yeah. So, you know, it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't matter what you name your hard drive. If you're OCD like me, or as I like to say, CDO, which is OCD in alphabetical order, like it should be, <laughs> uh, then, you know, you, you reserve a drive name and that's it. And, 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 you know, Mark, you were smart to, to start with Grateful Dead uh, stuff. And, and they, you probably did it for a similar reason that I chose Miles Davis because they he had, uh, and as is the dead, had a long and prolific career with lots and lots of song names. So hopefully I'll never run out of hard drive names. But if I do, I guess I could make a switch at some point. Maybe yep. uh, maybe when I'm 50 to honor Miles dying at uh, at the age of 50, I'll, I'll switch to something else. No one hit wonders for you, huh, Dave? No, no, that's right. <laughs> That's 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the next part here, Dave. Now I think we both have some thoughts about the uh, suggested workflow here, and I don't know yeah. if I'm entirely comfortable with it. Yeah, Mark. Mark described his workflow. He did not ask for comment on it, but far be it from us <laughs> to refrain from talking when we have an opinion. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, I guess I'll start with my feelings on it, and then we can kind of bounce this back and forth. Um, the workflow is fine in that it will work. And I, I've done it recently, but it is not the way I would prefer to do it. Um, my in, in a very general sense, and then let's pass this back and forth, John. In a very general sense, I prefer to boot from another drive 
uh, to do this. And, and I think you do too, John, and you, you can go ahead and explain why I think we're both on the same page on this one. Well, what makes me uncomfortable is although this works and actually it worked for me. So I mentioned I have this SSC that I'm looking at. And the first thing I'm doing before I put it in the machine to test on the SATA interface is I put it in one of these really nice, uh, you know, OWC external cases. That's a USB two case. And just quick and dirty, I ran carbon copy cloner, you know, while I booted off of my internal drive and selected the appropriate folders, um, had to prune some stuff because the drive is smaller, right? quite a bit smaller than right. my uh, 500 gig. And then basically just ran it and did some other things until it finished. The, the only concern I have um, is that there is the potential that you may be trying to copy a file that's busy or in use or something like that. And you may not get, and just, you know, I mean, things are happening underneath the covers all the time on the system. So you may not get a 100% identical copy if you do it um, while the machine is running and you're copying from the, the boot drive to another drive. Right. I, On I, the other I, hand, I did it, Dave, and it worked. I, I mean, I, I, I took the drive, I slept as a startup drive and the thing span and, it, you know, it, it was identical um, as far as I could tell. Maybe not uh, totally identical, but identical enough where it booted and I was able to use the machine um, at, as if I was booting from the internal drive. So, right. Exactly the same reason why, why I hesitate from doing, from recommending it, but just like you, I did it recently and it's been fine. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's not perfect. So, uh, now he also talked about doing that with carbon copy cloner. Now that's fine. Um, it, in order to do that from a third drive you've got to either have yet another drive that is a clone right mm -hmm. or you've got to have something that you can boot from that you've installed a third-party utility on right uh for me i actually and 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 there's there's something to be said here carbon copy cloner is probably like i use super duper but essentially i think they're they're per performing very very similar if not identical operations and when you tell them to clone a drive they do skip certain files. There are temp files and cache files and things like that that are typically skipped as part of a, a normal clone process. And that's okay. I mean, it, it, you know, obviously it makes a, a bootable clone that has everything you would need. It's just going to go ahead and create its own temp files. And, and it's smart when you're doing a backup every day, you don't need to go and copy all these temp files that have changed because you could just recreate them. They're, it's not necessary. But what I, I actually prefer to use disk utility. For for two reasons. One, I get a per, I get a true clone. And number two, uh, it's very easy to use disk utility because I can boot from my Mac OS 10 DVD as my, you know, third disk and I'm good to go inside disk utility. I use the restore option and you put the source drive in as the source and the destination drive in as the destination. And you say go. I, I usually check the box to erase the destination first uh, mm -hmm. and then it goes and does it. So, you know, I and I realize that it probably it really doesn't matter whether we're using Super Duper or Carbon Copy Cloner or Disk Utility when going back. Um, but I, I I've always done it that way and I've always had great success with it that way. So I continue to do that. I, you know, it, and it's just easy because it's on the DVD. I don't need to create a, this, you know, alternate boot drive. What, what would you use, John? I. Use Carbon Copy Cloner. Okay. So, um, so yeah, what I'll do is, uh, you know, have an external, or, or I'll have a disk 
you know, it doesn't have to be large to hand. So I'll, I'll have a disk that has a Mac OS 10 installation and the utility of my choice, uh, okay. which I, I prefer a carbon copy cloner. You know, and I've thrown the guy a few bucks because I think they, it's, it's an excellent piece of software. And that way you're guaranteed that the, the, the source and destination drives are not going to be, you know, a system disk or, or busy in any way. So, and, and you have enough, you typically should have enough ports to do this. I mean, yeah. You know, my machine has two USB ports on it, one, yeah. one on either side, and uh, the drive inside. So, the, the nice part about doing what you're describing is you can use this boot disk not just for your cloning, but you can also put Disk Warrior or Drive Genius or any of the other third party utilities that you might want to have as a separate, um, you know, a separate boot. Uh, you know, use from a separate boot drive and you can just build all this together. And depending on the size of it, you could even do it on a, uh, on a flash drive, as long as it's big enough to hold uh, all the stuff, but you know, so yeah, there, there's definitely some benefits there. All right. Anything, are we good on Mark here, John? Uh, we're good on Mark. I'm going to mention one thing I see here in this utility in the menu I just talked about, and, and then we'll move mm. on because I, I don't know what these do, but I, I just I never knew this. about that menu before. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's just worth uh, any program here and just just right click or command click on everything and just see what comes up. But it has two items here. It has a little debug menu and it has two items. One says invalidate cached data, which sounds kind of cool. Then it has a, a choice called dump item, which I'm not even I'm not clicking on that. Now, where that where are you bad. seeing this? Uh, go to this utility, select a drive. Yeah. Right click on it. Oh, but not a partition, but the drive itself. Well, it could be either. Okay. So I, I get info. Yeah. Right? I right-click on it? Right-click on the drive. In okay. The menu on the left-hand side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I okay. see that. Okay. So I get... The menu, help, information, first aid, erase, partition, raid, restore. Yeah, see okay. see debug menu? I see no debug there. I see help, information, first aid, erase, partition, raid, restore. That's it. Huh. Okay, I'm gonna have to figure out what I did to get the debug menu. <laughs> huh? Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, there's two items here: invalidate cache data, which I, I assume clears the drive cache, and then dump item, which just sounds like something I, I don't want to click right now. Yeah. So, in order to turn that on, there's a developer tech note uh, where you. Well, I also have a debug menu on the top of the screen too. Yes, my, I do. At least... I do not have that. Hmm. Okay, maybe it's in the preferences, but it it is. They're saying you can open your disk utility p list uh, and change, and you have to add a. We'll put a link in the show notes to this. I'll, I'll send you the link. Okay, here, I must John. have done that at one point when I was geeking out. Yeah. Okay. So that's all I got to say about this. Huh. Oh, this is special stuff. I like you. We're, we're digging deep here, Dave. Yeah. Oh, this is good stuff. All right. Um, I'm going to send you these links here, John, because that's. That's an important thing for us to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's two links. One tells you, one tells you what it's doing and one, the other tells you how to do it. So they will be in the show notes. We promise. Uh, okay. Moving on to Aaron. I told you this show was going to go deep on the geeky stuff. I didn't expect we get there like right out of the gate, but you know, it's good. Aaron writes, I have a 320 gig Western digital USB powered external hard drive. I was copying files from my work computer to the Western digital drive to bring home and the window, which contains the little progress bar that shows what is copying and the time remaining froze up. I had three different folders copying at once. 
This is how my troubles began. Now, I can't see what files are on that disk. It is partitioned in two halves. And when I click on one of the partitions, it shows that 61 gigs are available, meaning 89 are being used. And I can see the folders on the root directory, but it says there are zero items and I cannot see files inside of any of these folders. Similar result when I click on the other partition with different gigabyte amounts that match what I expect. So I ran disk utility and disk warrior and they both fail because they say they cannot unmount the disk. It then tells me to quit all applications because the disk is in use, which it absolutely is not. I quit everything. So I believe there's a super secret process or something talking to my drive, not letting it unmount. Uh, I just ordered disk warrior today, so I don't have their bootable CD yet, but that was what disk warrior's recommendation was to use their bootable CD. I'll use that when it arrives. I booted from the Mac OS 10 installed DVD and ran disk utility on the drive. And it says everything is okay. No repair needed. But as soon as I restart and log into a user account, disk utility and disk warriors say the disk is in use and can't unmount. I don't see any processes and activity monitor that could be related to the disk being in use. But then again, I don't really know what to look for. I'm running Mac OS 10, 10.6.5 snow leopard on my computer at home and at work. I feel like there's an easy fix for this one, but I can't find what is tying up my disk. Okay. Uh, you know, usually, I, John, a reboot will solve this. Well, I want to answer his first question. Okay. Specific to, and then we'll dig deep here because okay. I have some thoughts. Um, yeah. So if you're in Activity Monitor, there is a way to see files and processes open. It's not immediately obvious. So what you have to do is when you're in Activity Monitor, you'll see the list of processes. If you double click, you will then get another window. And on the right will be a tab, Open Files and Ports. Now, the, the list may be overwhelming, but it will show you what files uh, and ports that particular process uh, is owns or you know has open and is using. Okay. Again, it can be overwhelming. I'm looking here, and you know there's there's a lot of stuff. I have no idea what it is. So, but to answer that question, that feature is available with an activity monitor, but it, it it's like the kitchen sink. But so. you will only see it for the process you select, correct? Right. So this this could be a uh, yeah, the <laughs> time consuming undertaking. All right. So I have another I have another idea. Um, it involves using not one but two Unix commands, but they're they're simple. So I, I'm going to try and explain it. L S O F is the first one. That uh, you know, I honestly don't know what it stands for. Do you, off the top of your head, John? I'm going to guess L S is you know the the list command, and I'm going to think open O F is open files. Yeah, oh, look at you guys. Holy are, cow. are we smart? <laughs> I knew there was a reason I did not do this alone, and now <laughs> here we are. Okay, good. Yet never try this at home alone. That's right. Uh, so L S O F will list open files, but if you just do that, uh, it's going to be a big long thing. Uh, what you want to do is look for the open files on the volume name. Uh, that you're talking about. Uh, so the easiest way to do that, well, there's two ways. Number one, you could type, you could go into terminal, type LSOF, hit enter. It is going to be a lag before you see results. And then as soon as all the results finish appearing, you could just use the terminals find function and search for the name of the volume that it's on. So for example, uh, right now I'm recording the podcast to a, a second volume and it's called stuff. So I can just look for stuff in my terminal and I'll see that, okay, yep, here it is. And there's a product, a, a, um, a, a process that starts with audio and then a space. I'm going to guess that's audio hijack pro, which it is. And it's saving this file off to the drive. 
which is really which I'm which is which now is showing me something that's solving a completely different problem. So I'm not going to talk about it. Um, but uh, the um, I'm, I'm I'm distracted now by this uh, this issue I've been having. But anyway, uh, you can do that. Or if you want to do it the full Unix way, what you would do is you would what you want to do is use a command called grep, which will search for a string or really a regular expression inside anything you throw at it. So the idea is you want to take the output of LSOF and pipe it into the grep command. So the grep command is very simple. It's G R E P space. And then the name uh, of the volume. So for me, it's stuff or even just a part of the name of the volume, anything that's going to be relatively unique. Uh, so you have LSOF and then you have this grep stuff command and, and grep is case sensitive. So for me, I have to do stuff with a capital S cause that's how the drive is named. The idea in Unix to pipe them together is to use what's called the pipe character. So you type LSOF space and then the pipe, which is the straight up and down line. That's usually on Apple keyboards. Anyway, uh, the shifted version of the backslash, which is the key right above the return key, at least on my iMac's keyboard. So you do LSOF space pipe space grep space stuff. And then it takes the same amount of time because there's that little lag when LSOF, LSOF runs and then and then up it comes. So that's my uh, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it with with the way to find what process and what you're doing is you're looking at the leftmost column in that output. That's going to tell you it's either finder or maybe you've got like Dropbox or something running that's pointing to something on that drive. And that's you know, you, you probably have some startup process. That's uh, that's getting in the way of that tribe. That's that's all. So your your boot from uh, Disc Warrior CD when that arrives will probably solve and negate all need for this conversation. But uh, hmm. but for the rest of you, you know, there you go. So that's that's my story with that. And I think you know something about this. But the other thought I had to because I, I saw this in my console the other day, and there's this thing called FS Events D. Okay. And every now and then I'll, I'll see this in the console and we'll say, oh, event log in uh, FS events D out of sync with volume, destroying old logs, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know too much about FS events D. I, I thought you said oh, you had. I do. I thought you went to WWDC and I think you actually went to a you know session where they kind of told you what, what the heck that is. And I don't know if that's the one holding on to this or not. Yeah. Um if so FS is getting upset with this drive and, and preventing it from being FS adjusted. events is a process that runs all the time. And it, it, there's a couple of things that, uh, that it does, but it, in essence, it keeps an eye on your entire drive and knows when a file has changed. That can be really, really handy. And Apple uses it for time machine among, among other things. Uh, when time machine runs, the first thing it needs to do is figure out, okay, what files do I need to back up? What files have changed since the last time I ran? Now there's a couple of ways of getting that information. The kind of the crude way would be to scan the entire drive and then scan the entire backup drive and compare the two. And that works and it's somewhat foolproof, but it's also really disc intensive and takes a really long time. So what FS events does is you kind of register. I, and I, again, now I'm now I'm getting into to muddy water here because I've just never done this. But my understanding is as an application. So in this case, time machine, you register with FS events and you say, OK, uh, mark this point in time. 
And on my behalf, just keep track of anything that changes between now and the next time that I come and ask. And uh, so it goes to FS events and says, Hey, up, oh, I'm about to run again. What do you got for me? And it says, Oh yeah, here's your list. Bye-bye. And that's really, really handy. So I don't think FS events should be keeping any files open on this drive, but you know, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Right. So that's FS events. I think unless I'm completely wrong, but I don't, I don't think I'm, I, I'm a little bit wrong, but I don't think I'm completely wrong on that one. Hmm. Uh, any other thoughts on this one, John? Nope. No. Okay. Um, Kirk, Kirk has an interesting question. They all are interesting. Kirk says, Hey guys, I found a hack on the internet to allow air print ability to work with all printers that an air print. Of course, for those of you that don't know is the feature of the combined feature of Mac OS 10, 10.6.5 and iOS 4.2.1 or 4.2 that allows iOS devices to print from some apps to some printers uh, that are connected to your Mac, but it does not work with all printers. And there are various reasons for this, but, uh, but there are hacks out there on the internet as Kirk found. So Kirk says, essentially, you're not going to, I'm not going to talk through the process, but you download some files and then you replace some files uh, in your user or USR slash share slash cups slash mime folder uh, with other files that you download off the internet. And now this uh, allows all printers to work after you restart your Mac, you delete your printer, you re add the printer after you've restarted and boom, all this works. Uh, so Kirk says, I did this on both my MacBook pro on uh, my MacBook and my Mac pro. It worked great on the Mac pro, but on the MacBook, not so much. The issue with the MacBook is now when I print through OS 10, I get an error message on the print queue and it will not print. I tried restoring the files that I replaced with their originals, but the problem persists. So I'm not sure where to go. I have reset my uh, PRAM, my uh, I've deleted the printer. I've reinstalled and nothing has worked. Hoping you guys can shed some light on this for me. So let's talk about some of the things that I came up with when trying to answer his question, John, and then, and then we'll talk about the follow-up email we got from him, which actually I believe will lead us to the answer. Uh, I, the, the first thing, anytime I have wacky printer issues, I go back to one of the things we talked about in a recent show, John, which is reset the printing system. You go into system preferences, you choose print and fax, and then you right click or control click, just like we were talking about in disk utility, but this time on the, on the printers list. And there's one option for reset printing system. This will delete all your printers and reset everything back to ground zero. And in most cases, this solves even the strangest of printer problems. Uh, if that doesn't work, I was thinking, well, maybe there were some other files that got replaced that, you know, he forgot about in the process or something else happened. So a combo reinstall or a reinstall of the 1065 combo updater would hopefully catch that 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 was kind of my thought john um and then he wrote us and told us that he had his error message was that there was an uh it was saying it could not execute a <sighs> certain process oh, yeah and so that immediately jumped me to permissions right because in unix there are, for simplicity's sake, three types of permission you can assign. Read privileges, 
write privileges and execute privileges. And typically when you write a new file, so in Kirk's case, he copied a file from one place to another. It does not get execute permissions granted because, you know, from a Unix standpoint, you don't want to give every file the ability to be executed. You kind of want to be specific about that uh, because there could be some script that's, you know, nefarious or, or what have you. So my thought was a repair of permissions might fix this, but you could also do it from the command line uh, with a chmod command. But uh, and at chmod space a plus x space and the name of the file, and that would that would give execute permissions to the file for anybody, and that's probably what you want. But hopefully, a repair of permissions would solve this. Any any thoughts? I don't know if you know when. No, I. No, I got nothing to add. I'm I'm with you. Is uh, any printer problems? Uh, you know what what you suggested is is kind of the nuke and pave of the <laughs> of the printing system, it's, and that as far as I know, it, it basically puts it in a state uh, as if it were, uh, you know, brand new. Yeah, yeah, and it's nice that we have that ability in the printing system because if we didn't, um, you know, it would be a mess trying to dig in there and, and clear all that stuff out. It's, it, you know, and obviously Apple figured this out and said, Hey, wait a minute, you know, we need a way of kind of resetting the printing system back to ground zero without telling people to format their drive. Thank goodness. Now, shouldn't speaking of air print, shouldn't air print also work with printers connected to something like a Tom capsule? Oh, I think it should. I definitely think it should. So in my case, I got a, this shaker, well, a finger wag at Apple, because I got a fairly new, I, I bought a little while ago, an HP B8550. The, the reason I got this is because it'll do prints 13 by 19 and larger, which, uh, right. you know, I got some pictures that I like to put in something larger than 8.5 by 11, and, and this does a great job. And HP has something, I think they call it iPrint, HP iPrint, which is a little app that you can put, you know, in my case, an iPod Touch or, you know, of course, your iPhone or something. And if you got photographs on it, you can print them. And... The B8550, which is plugged into my time capsule, shows up just fine. But when I tried to do air print after upgrading my touch, didn't see it. No, of course not. And, and I'm, I'm just baffled because, I mean, I can't imagine this is such a exotic protocol. that I mean, it seems that printers other than mine, like some of the all-in-ones, are, are on the list. But yeah, it's just aggravating. Yeah. Yeah. I, on, the, yeah on the other hand, yeah. I, I can't find a burning need to, to print for my iPod touch. Um, so. Yeah, it w- it's more it's more of an issue for me anyway from the iPad, because there there are more times when using the iPad that I think, oh, I, I want to print this. Oh, yeah. OK. I got to, you know, figure out what hoops I got to jump through. So whatever. All right. Uh, moving on to Rob. We ready for Rob, John? We're ready. Okay. Rob's got a MacBook Pro running 10.65. He says, this is my runabout machine commuting from home to the studio to locations wherever. Mail that app always tends to be a little flaky. My iPhone actually does a better job in general sending and receiving mail from all my accounts. For years now, I've been unable to connect to my Gmail accounts while at the office. Either there's a port blocked in our connection, or at least the way our system is set up, it really doesn't like to work with external IMAP accounts, though SMTP for sending mail works after a fashion. So for a long time, I used one of my Yahoo accounts for personal mail, which worked fairly well with both POP and SMTP. Note that our internal mail, which is on an exchange server, works okay as both POP and exchange. 
Now, over the last couple of years, I've managed to convert all my email accounts to IMAP, which is much more convenient going as I do between the iPhone and several different computers. Over the summer, I discovered a way to get my external IMAP accounts to work while at work. I use Hotspot Shield. With Hotspot Shield running, I could connect to all my external mail, all IMAP or Exchange, and everything was fine. Then, about two weeks ago, my joy ended. Suddenly, Hotspot Shield could no longer connect while on the studio internet connection. I got a waiting for server message, and eventually, it failed. Of course, I tried at home and elsewhere, and Hotspot Shield connects almost instantly. I talked to my IT person, and she says that she has not closed any ports. I don't know what else might have changed. Yes, I updated to 1065, but as I noted, Hotspot Shield works on other networks. I've tried both the wireless and hardwired Ethernet here at the studio. I get no other error messages beyond those of Hotspot Shield itself, and Safari itself works just fine, as do other Internet-based apps like NetNewsWire, Dropbox, and SugarSync. So any troubleshooting ideas, either from the perspective of getting iMac to work on its own or resuscitating Hotspot Shield? All right, uh, Pete, you're over there researching. Do you know what Hotspot Shield is? I don't. Okay. Uh, yeah, Hotspot is the VPN service you used to use. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's why I'm, yeah. No, it, it, and yeah. and uh, so I'm guessing that this shield is doing something along the lines of making of a different it. tunnel yeah. Yeah. and encrypting this, which if there was a problem with the firewall passing IMAP connections... And and it didn't have a problem passing hotspot connections, then anything you tunneled through this hotspot thing right. would work fine. But now it looks like the firewall is blocking hotspot connections all by itself. Um, so this is a weird one, John. I, I'm going to take his IT person's comments at face value. But I think something else may have changed. I saw something like this. I, we had a, a client down in Austin that we set up a sonic wall firewall, which is kind of the, the um, if, if Linksys is the common router for people to use in their homes, sonic wall is, is kind of the common firewall to use in a corporate environment. There's lots of others, of course, there's barracudas and, and things like that, but sonic wall is one of the more popular ones and, and they're not cheap. You know, you spend about a grand on, on, on the one we got and they've got great firewalls and great configuration and, and great protection, but I do remember having issues with it specifically with its um, what they call its SPI or stateful packet inspection firewall, which takes a look at each connection that's going out and coming in and tries to figure out what it is and what to do with it. And the problem I remember having with this sonic wall was that it was cutting connections off too soon. So we had to kind of open it up and, and loosen it up a little bit and my guess is that IMAP um, and even this hotspot thing are requesting a type of connection that that this stateful packet, or, you know, the, the, the stateful firewall just doesn't like. And it might need to be loosened up a little bit, even though it's not blocking IMAP in particular and the port itself is open. It doesn't like leaving the connection open. And so it might have, you know, the, the, the timeouts might have been shortened something i don't know but but that i remember having that issue and having to kind of go into the firewall and saw in the sonic wall interface and say uh yeah don't be quite as hasty about that and then everything got fine so that that's that's one thought i have i know you you said you have a couple so let's bounce this back and forth as i look at hotspot shield i'm, I'm going to change my thoughts 
Okay. What I, well, what I was initially going to say is, well, there's an easy way to, to check if you're making IBAP connections, but from what I can see from this product, it, it's not really... Uh, from what I can tell, they say that they convert what you're doing into an HTTPS session in order uh-huh. to get you out. Well, that's what I see here. That's okay. how they describe the product. Is that, So I think what they may be doing at a low level is converting connections or redirecting. So, so your, your various programs will make the connections on the port that they want. And then this thing kind of makes a translation and converts it to HTTPS, which is on port 443. Right. Which um, most firewalls are going to let through. Uh, ones that are not, as you pointed out, looking at the traffic saying, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure about, well, not that they really could because it's HTTPS. Right. But so, they can still look at the way the packets are going and say, Hey, wait a minute. Why would this connection need to be kept open or, you know, something along those lines. And, and I think that's what a state for firewall in a very general kind of watered down sense is going to go and do. Yeah. I mean, the, the way I would, and I did this just looking at my machine again, I'm not using this product, but um, you know, if you fire up network utility, there is a um, netstat section and you can look at, your network connections. And I saw, you know, on my list here, uh, several that at the end of the uh, address of the destination machine, I think it showed IMAP S, which shows that it's a, you know, SSL encrypted IMAP yep. connection, I think is what that means. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if they have some other piece of software that maybe sees this as a threat. I, I, th- I think it's that firewall. That, that would be my guess. Uh, yeah, because I remember at one point I installed, you know, it was actually, I think, it, it, no, it wasn't a product like this, but um, on on a work machine, I had installed, I think it was actually a, uh, a Telnet client. Okay. And apparently the one that I installed had some sort of uh, pretty obvious exploit. And all of a sudden one day, you know, I fire up my machine and it says, oh, uh, you know, McAfee uh, disabled this because uh, we don't like it. Sure. It's like the first time ever. Huh. That I ever been in the workplace that this antivirus software came up and actually said, I'm, I'm disabling this because I don't like this application program that you installed recently. I, I found another one that was that was better. It didn't have this uh, potential exploit. The, the, the other thing I'm going to mention is that actually one of my Twitter buddies was having a problem logging into his IMAP servers. And I think he solved the problem, though it was a direction that I would not have thought of, but maybe something worth checking here. The, the username and password that you use to get into uh, an IMAP server, oddly enough, is stored in your keychain. Mm-hmm. And I saw this, and I, I was just looking to verify this because I suspected this was the case. So if you save them, so you have to type them in each time, which you know you may handy. not want to do. Right. Well, it's handy, but you know if someone gets at your machine and you walk well, away I think for the, a moment, the then password you... is stored in the keychain, but not the username. Yes, it is. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. And so if you look in, uh, so I looked in in keychain access. In the login keychain, um, you then look at the uh, passwords category, and then if you, you can sort by kind, internet passwords, and you should see your uh, email passwords stored in there. It, it may be that the entry in the keychain is corrupt, and you may want to whack it and, and see if that fixes the problem. It could be that you're constantly trying to log in with the wrong password, and the, the server's like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to assume that's not the case. I mean, he says this is yeah, his, yeah. his runabout no, machine, no, I'm right? With you. I'm with you. So, but yeah, it's. I mean, it's certainly worth making sure that your credentials are are right. You'd get a different error message, though. I would assume. Uh, I mean, it should come back and say the server says your password's bad, and then ask you for your password. Right? That's what I mean. Tr- traditionally, that's what mail does. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, as I was, and I don't, you know, without knowing exactly what kind of firewall and how the network's set up, it's 
it's really hard to speculate. But as I was answering this email, I started thinking, well, you know, if it's asking to keep a connection open and the firewall is not happy about that, what if we could tell it to not try to keep a connection open? And that got me thinking about a, a protocol or a piece of the IMAP protocol called IMAP idle uh, newer versions. I think since leopard 10.5 uh, support this. And what it does is it essentially is like, you know, what people often call push email for IMAP and it's on by default in mail. If you go into your preferences accounts advanced, uh, you'll see a little checkbox at the bottom of that window that says use idle in all caps command if the server supports it. And what this does is, once it makes the first connection to your mail server, the connection stays open. And when new mail comes in, the server actually sends a request down the line that says, Hey, you've got new mail. You should check. And then the, you know, the mail client goes and checks. So it seems like as mail comes in, it's pushed down to your inbox. It's not quite what's happening, but that's the, the affected, you know, the intended uh, result. Uh, but it requires this connection to stay open. Uh, so you can uncheck that box and see if that helps. Probably isn't going to help because I think the idle command is instituted at the end of a normal check session. So you've got to get through a normal check for it to even try to do that. But who knows how mail's doing these things? Maybe, maybe there's something to it. Uh, as an aside, Gmail, for those of you that are using Gmail, Gmail does support IMAP idle uh, when you're using it for IMAP. But unless you have a paid Google Apps account, so if you're using free Gmail or a free Google Apps account, you are only allowed to have two simultaneous connections open to Gmail at any given point in time. So if you have a web connection and one mail client open with an idle connection, it's going to bounce other requests or at least going to make them flaky. Uh, so, I, and I've found, I don't tend to use IMAP idle because it, I find it very distracting to know immediately that an emails come in. I, I just, when I want to see if I have email, I check my mail. So I turn off, IMAP idle on most of my machines. The other day I realized it was still on at the one over at the house and I was having some trouble at the office. And when I came, I came home in the afternoon to grab a, a sandwich or something. And I noticed, Oh, I left mail open on the, on the machine in the house. And as soon as I turned it off, everything at the office got happy. And, uh, and it clearly was that. So, you know, IMAP idle is, is cool. Uh, and, and certainly helpful for a lot of people, but just make sure, especially with Gmail that you're managing it properly. Because if you've got certainly huh. two machines up like that, it's going to cause you all kinds of grief. So, or more wow. than two machines. I, yeah. I'm the opposite, man. I'm actually, uh, in addition, and I just looked at my setup, uh, in addition to using the idle command, I also run something called, uh, I think it's called Growl Mail. Oh. It's a, a plugin for mail that gives you Growl notifications. How does that not drive you crazy? I mean, and dude, between that and Twitter and you're ADD like me, how do you, how I mean, do you I, possibly get anything done with your computer constantly <laughs> telling you about all this information you need to check out? Furious crud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't live like that. The Dropbox is bad. No, well, you don't use growl at all. Oh, okay. I use it. I use it for basically for one thing. Uh, I do have growl installed. The only thing that it, that it talks to me about is my super duper backups. So when I get to one of two things happens, when I get to my desk, I either see that, that my super duper backup completed because there's a little growl, the persistent growl notification that says it happened overnight, or I have growl send me an email if it fails. So I know instantly if there's a problem right. uh, and it's really handy for that. But yeah, when some new app 
comes, you know, if I run something and it automatically attaches to growl and starts, you know, littering the right side of my screen with all this stuff. It's like, dude, I'm trying to get work done here. Why are you telling me all this information? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, they let you, yeah, on a per application basis, enable or disable it. Yeah, I, I only have it for a few different apps. But, yeah. Um, no, occasionally I have it set up so I can glance and see if, uh, you know, the, either the subject or part of the email is um, is something that, that's important. And if it is, then I'll go over to mail app. Otherwise, I'll just let it slide and, uh, you know, focus yeah. on something else. Well, that's right. You so, yelled at me one day. You, you were it was back when you had a day job uh, and and I was doing stuff in the Mac Geek Cab folder that we have in Dropbox. And I guess you get growl notifications from Dropbox. And there mm-hmm. I was all morning prepping the show and throwing files in and taking files out and saving, you know, regularly saving this RTFD file that we use. And you sent me an email. You're like, uh, dude, what are you doing? I'm getting Dropbox notifications every minute. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Turn off. Yeah. Turn them off. That's how I know it's show day. That's right. Is that <laughs> you? Girl starts yelling at me. Okay. Yeah. See? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, whatever works for you. Well, same here. I, I know when you're working on the agenda. Because, yeah. yeah, I start to see the, the Dropbox. But that's pretty much it. Actually, is. now, ever since you asked me that, I don't do that anymore. I, I prep it outside and then drag the one folder in, and that's that. So Yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. Um, Jim, you know, it wouldn't be a Mac Geek Gab show, especially not a geeky Mac Geek Gab show. Uh, without talking about SSDs, and I know we've talked about SSDs once already because you're testing one, so you mentioned it. But uh, but Jim has a couple of questions that are that are that are good. Um, Jim's first question: He says in uh, Mac Geek of three hundred one, you mentioned that it was a bad idea to defragment an SSD, which it is. Uh, I just bought a thirteen inch MacBook Air, awesome, with one hundred twenty eight gigs SSD, and I'm going to have to manage storage space a little more carefully than on my MacBook Pro. Is it safe to use products like Onyx, Mac, Onyx, Mac Cleanse, etc., to decrud the SSD? If not, is there some other software that does the same kind of thing? No, Onyx, all that stuff is fine. Uh, you know, and, and, and I'll say for, for our sake, John, it's not us that are, I mean, I'm obsessed over SSDs, but I, it's because I've been using them for a year and a half. Now that everybody's getting these MacBook Airs, uh, it's you folks that are getting obsessed over it. So we're happy to, to feed into the obsession because it's really, you know, it's like a club. We wear jackets. Uh, but yeah, Onyx... It's totally fine on an SSD. You know, it's the defrag where you're taking files and moving them from one section of the drive to another. There's that doesn't really translate on the SSD. But what it does is it totally beats on the drive for no good reason whatsoever. So that that's why you don't want to defrag. But certainly removing files and, and cleaning cache files and making sure your logs stay cleaned up and all that stuff is totally fine. Right. You don't you don't see any reason why not, John. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. all right and now i think we're going to disagree right john on his second question he oh, says yeah. i'd like to invest wisely in an external storage to augment the 128 gigs i'd like to get the fastest external storage device available available to keep up with the internal ssd but my guess is the usb2 connection to it would slow everything down anyway so is it worth it to invest in an external SSD or because of the USB connection limitations, would it be good enough to just use either a thumb drive or standard USB hard drive? Okay. So my feelings on this, John, uh, unless Jim, unless you're going to be copying large chunks of data back and forth between the external hard drive and the SSD, I don't think the USB two issue is going to, I don't think USB two is going to be an issue. Um, the biggest benefit I saw when I, when I moved from hard drive to SSD was not the transfer speed, which is fast, but instead is the reduction in, in latency or as we were talking about before seek time, the time it takes to, to 
get the drive to start reading whatever file it is I want to to read. And and originally for the first month or more, I ran my SSD over USB and loved it just the same as I do today. Um, and I've said it before, when I moved the SSD inside, uh, I saw no noticeable difference in like boot times and usability times. Obviously, speed tests, I saw a huge difference. So so I, I think you're OK going with a, a, you know, depend. I don't know what you're going to use it for, Jim. So it's hard to answer the question, but feel free to you know write in more and we'll obviously share our advice but uh but so that that's my thought on that so john well, i'm gonna violently disagree violently you. that's good <laughs> oh not violently no that's too but good. um but no so i've been doing some initial tests here so so what i have again is the uh, samsung 470 series ssd i think it's a uh, one of the new newer drives okay. uh, and it looks pretty nice uh, but the first thing i did because i don't want to pop it in the machine is right yeah as i mentioned before i have it in usb 2 case and the thing is i didn't really notice a spectacular um you know like life-changing difference in how the machine operated with that the boot time was a little faster but not by much like for example i think i well i went from a total boot time now we're talking from the chime to getting to the desktop and i see no disk activity that's what i'm going to describe as the boot cycle okay okay? i think without it took three minutes and with two minutes so to me oh it it is faster yeah, but not, you know, but not, you know, orders of magnitude, as we like to say. And then I was running various programs and, you know, some of them seem to weep at snap. How about how about launching? Like if you go in and launch four apps at once it and what's the experience of doing that like on your hard drive versus versus the, the solid state drive? Um, I'm going to get to that. I haven't okay. done that yet, but that, okay. that was another test I wanted to do. But as far as boot time, again, it was faster, but not. I mean, that's 30% Amazingly faster. So. That's, uh, yeah. you know, oh, sure, sure. significant. Yeah. But okay. then, then I ran, uh, this is interesting. And then I ran drive genius because I wanted to quantify the, uh, you know, the, the performance of my internal drive, right. Which is, you know, a 500 gig, uh, you know, of Hitachi that, that to replace the 250 that the machine came with. Yep. And I would estimate that that drive is, you know, at least twice as fast as the drive that was in there. And looking at some of the benchmarks, the USB 2 is definitely the bottleneck because I would run oh, yeah. the benchmarks and in several cases, the internal drive. Now, the other thing is that the internal drive is on a SATA bus. Now, this, it, it's kind of a crippled one because on our machine, I think it's a 1.5 gigabit mm-hmm. SATA bus when it could be three, but it's not. And right. the drive actually is a three. So, you know, that's going to affect the test. But I saw clearly where the USB 2 or rather the enclosure, you know, the USB to SATA interface was the bottleneck because I would see the graph plateau at a certain point, which was pretty much the you know throughput of the USB two, either on the on the Mac or the the enclosure itself. Right. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. That make that makes sense. But but I think the thing I agree with you, and I think I'll, I'll see this more um, as as I use it more. Again, I just did, did a quick test because to me the real test is going to be putting it in the machine okay. you know, when I can get the full bandwidth. sandwich, but SATA bandwidth. Ugh, how do I switch that? Okay, but. You were saying, you know, you keep going about the latency, and I'm like, what are, what are you talking about, man? And so I, I actually dug into this, and, yeah. and I'm with you because this is where I think, especially if you're doing lots of operations, rapid operations, where you keep asking the drive to do something. As you pointed out, I think latency and seek time, I think, are, are fairly interchangeable. The right. seek time, you kind of average out because at least on a mechanical drive, you could be going from one part of the drive all the way to the other part, or you could be going a, a small distance. Right. So, 
But the drive that I got, they described the latency on it, which is pretty quick, I think, for a mechanical of 4.2 milliseconds. Okay? No okay. milliseconds, which is, you know, 10 to the negative 3. Right. Then I looked, well, you know, what's the latency on some of the SSDs out there? And, and one figure I got, which I think is representative of the memory technology out there, is about 10 micro, no, yeah. I said microseconds, which is 10 to the sixth, negative, I'm sorry. Right. So you're talking a difference, at least in this particular case, if, if you take those numbers as representative, a difference of about 420 times. That's right. That's yeah. big. So if oh, you're yeah. doing operations that, uh, uh, so I think I'm with you. If you're doing operations that involve transfers of huge monstrous files, um, then well, the USB they, interface may right. be a bottleneck and you may not be thrilled. But I, I think as you're pointing out, the the, the you know order of magnitude increase, uh, two orders of magnitude at least, uh, increase in, in the performance with latency uh, will make it worthwhile. Now, you can also wait for USB 3, though. It's not quite there yet. I'm actually testing another drive, and I'm waiting for an express card USB 3 interface, but the, the chips are you know, uh, uh, in short supply right now. Right. So uh, that'd be another thing, because USB 3.0, I believe, is, yeah, in the gigabits per second yeah. range. Yeah, it and is. people are waiting for that. So, so you may want to hold off a little bit, though, you know, maybe hard to do. Or, yeah, but if, it, you, I, know, you know, I, I can't imagine Jim's going to be transferring data between the two drives, right? I, I, I don't, I, yeah. I don't think that's his goal here. I, I think it's more right. to store data on, but he doesn't want to be reading some stuff from his SSD and then reading some stuff from this other drive. That's going to slow mm. down his user experience. That that's my guess, but I, I can't imagine mm. why he would be transferring large chunks of data between the two. I, I don't think that's the question you were asking Jim, but, uh, no, but I yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, the things I noticed and that I'd like to have you look for John is, uh, you know, previously when, when on a uh, mechanical drive, time machine backup was running i couldn't do anything without noticing that the time machine backup was running same with a big mobile me sync same with a dropbox you know big dropbox sync anything like that now i i could i don't even think about it it just it just happens and it, it's that seek time thing and and the same is true for launching you know five apps at once i previously just wouldn't do that because it was it would grind my machine to a halt but now it's no problem so all right, we we have uh we have four tips and we're we're running short on time here and I say that because I've got to uh I've got a I've got a time wall I'm up against which is never good when podcasting. Let's go. Come on. But let's go. Yeah, so we've got uh we've got a couple of things we want to we want to go through here and we'll start with we'll start with Gray with the uh a tip that's not related to a previous show. The other three are but uh, it's good to share. Hi Dave, John and Pilot Pete. This is Gray in Jeffersonton. Just wanted to relay, relay a uh, problem I had with my Bluetooth keyboard that might uh, be useful to someone else who does the same sort of thing. I was cleaning my desk the other day and took everything off the desk to do that. Turned off my iMac, uh, lifted up the keyboard and put it on the desk chair. After I was done cleaning, put everything back, turned the, t the uh, iMac back on, the Bluetooth keyboard was not recognized. Um, I checked the batteries, pushed the power button to make sure the light came on. It just said, Bluetooth keyboard is not found on multiple occasions. I went, took the um, 
keyboard into my wife's office where her iMac was also unable to pair with the um, keyboard and just about gave up when um, I thought I'd try one more thing before I uh, called Apple. And that was pairing it with the iPhone 4 and connect, see if it connect to that. And I turned the iPhone 4 on into its uh, settings uh, app. I noticed that not only was it paired with the iPhone 4, it was connected to it. I had paired it with the iPhone when I got the iPhone 4 because I read somewhere you could, but I forgot to remove the Bluetooth keyboard from the list of devices so that what had happened is once I turned the iMac off, picked up the keyboard, I had pushed the power button and caused it to pair with the uh, iPhone on my hip. The reason it didn't pair with my wife's computer is when I carried the Bluetooth keyboard in there, I still had the iPhone on my hip and it was still connected in it within range. So, um, anyway, I sorted that out, even though it was my own uh, sort of dumb mistake. Uh, this is where you cut me off. Awesome. Thanks, Great. Yeah. It, it, so there's two good things to learn. Number one is if, if you've got multiple uh, devices paired to any one Bluetooth device, they will fight for, you know, there's, there, there could be a contention issue like you described. Uh, the other thing that's that's good to note about this comment is that your iPhone and your iPad uh, are capable of connecting uh, pairing to a Bluetooth keyboard. And you can use it in most, if not all apps that use the keyboard, which can be really handy. I, I don't know that I ever would have done it with an iPhone, but uh, but I've certainly done it with my iPad and and uh, could see many use cases where I would where I would do that again. So thank you for <laughs> thanks for sharing that tale, Gray. That, that was uh, I, I certainly got a chuckle out of it when when I heard it and when you finally got to the, the solution there. So. Moving on, John. Personally, I like to uh, use my iPod Touch and uh, scan for uh, random Bluetooth devices wherever I am. Nice. Hey, it's nice. like Bluetooth war driving there. That's right. Yeah, it's too bad. You know, the Alpha iStumbler was saying that there's no, um, I saw him saying it on Twitter the other day. There's no way to uh, to do that with Wi-Fi on the uh, uh, on the iPhone. I mean, you can see what Wi-Fi networks, what public Wi-Fi networks are there, but, you know, you can't scan. There's no way to do iStumbler, right, uh, on the on the iPhone or iPad. Uh, At least not with a public API, right? Right, and I think if you have a jailbroken phone, then I think there is an app that I found oh. that you do it. But it's, uh, but yeah, right. it's using private API, okay, so okay. that's somewhat naughty. Yeah, at least in terms of Apple's world. But yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, right. Okay, so we talked last time about Joe, who had a problem opening a fast saved Word file back from the old days, and we suggested two things. He tried uh, them both and found that Open Office did open his old word file that had been uh, saved using the fast save algorithm that that word used to allow. So, uh, so if you have any problems opening word documents, try openoffice.org. That's uh, that, that might do it for you. And Hey, you know, it's, uh, it's good stuff out there. So uh, anything to add to that one, John? Nope. All right. Then uh, uh, we go to Lyndon and Lyndon says, listening to shows 301 and 302, you mentioned that, the files that pages creates are in fact zip files. 
And that's true of the new version of Pages. This reminded me of a useful tip which may help some listeners out in respect to Keynote. It appears that on occasions, Keynote files can get corrupted. And when you click to open them, you get the error message unable to open file name because it isn't a valid Keynote document. As you can imagine, if you were five minutes from giving a presentation to over 100 people, this is not a good thing to see. The trick is to go back into the finder, change the extension from .key to .zip, then open the zip file, which turns into a folder. Take that folder, add the extension .key to the end of the folder name, and with the aid of unicorn tears or whatever it is, the file now opens in Keynote. What this seems to do is restore the index.apxi file, but you may have a better explanation. No, Lyndon, I don't have a better explanation, but... Uh, but I'm glad to know it and glad to share it because that's uh, that's good stuff for anybody. Like you said, man, that's the kind of thing you want to hope you remember when uh, when the, the clock's ticking down. So thank you for for sharing that. Do we have time? Do you think we have time to do Scott here, John? I I think we. We'll, we'll make. I, mean, I think it we work. could. Well, I, I think we could condense it. I mean, I yeah. think his uh, the his. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an easy tip. It is. Okay. So in uh, podcast 302 uh, about Wi-Fi, Scott writes, he said, and the fellow who lost coverage, uh, he said, you mentioned in passing the placement of the router would impact his coverage. Actually, I don't think you gave that factor enough emphasis. Having been in the wireless industry all my life, I can tell you that placement of the antenna is the primary determinant of coverage. Uh, in addition to and he has a little personal anecdote, uh, in addition to being a wireless fanatic, I'm also a neat freak. I hate wires. I think the two go hand in hand. Uh, when I set up my home office, I put only my iMac on the desk and connected everything to it via a USB cable and a hub in a nearby closet. The hub connects to my printer, scanners, external drives, etc. I also placed the cable modem in the closet and, for convenience, the airport extreme. What I didn't realize was that the mirrored door of the closet was blocking the signal from propagating throughout the house. With the door closed, signal strength in other areas of the house was puny, maybe one bar. But with it open, three bars virtually all over a very fairly sizable abode. The metallic side of the mirror was blocking the signal. I now just leave the sliding door open during work hours. So... Some tips for anyone having trouble with wireless coverage before they endure the arduous process of installing extenders, bridges, antenna boosters, etc. Number one, if at all possible, make sure the wireless router is located someplace where it is central to the coverage area. Putting it at one of the end of the house will limit the coverage everywhere else. Number two, keep it exposed. Don't put it in a closet if you can help it. But if you do, make sure you leave the door open during working hours. Number three, put it at a reasonable height off the floor. Signals will propagate better if they have some room around the device, and it will work better when the router is mounted higher rather than lower in any location. Finally, and this applies to all wireless gear that you have on hand, not just Wi-Fi routers, avoid putting fluorescent lights, cordless phone base stations, and other wireless gear within a couple of feet of the router. While all this stuff is supposed to work independently and eliminate interference in shared radio bands, some manufacturers are, shall we say, more diligent than others about signal selectivity, shielding, etc. Hope this helps. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Scott. That's uh, that's good stuff. We we definitely appreciate hearing all of that. Yeah, no, I like it. I think a lot of it revolves around metal. Metal is your enemy. Metal. And, and you always say liquid, John, right? Uh, for 2.4 gigahertz, I would say, but but I think you're you're much more likely to run into metal in your household than liquid. Um, 
I mean, you yeah, may, I mean, you may have pipes, but then the pipes are going to be metal in, in most cases. Though, no, you may have a large, uh, you know, like a sewer pipe or something like that uh, around somewhere. Um, but yeah, liquids can also affect 2.4 gigahertz. So, uh, right, right, right. All right. Um, you folks know how to contact us. You've purchased subscriptions from us. You've been listening presumably for a while, but there are some, uh, of course, new people here. Uh, for subscribers of the premium show we have a couple of different ways to contact us that uh that in addition to of course all the other ways that you've heard and known and loved over the years so that really it's it's one new thing and the and that's the email address it is premium at macgeekgab.com dave you said premium at macgeekgab.com did you I, not i did not i said premium at macgeekgab.com uh, sorry <laughs> 206-666-GEEK is the number to call. GEEK, of course, is... 4335. That's right. iTunes comments are much appreciated. Uh, John, you and I will be at Macworld Expo uh, next month. Sometime there, I think. Right? Yeah, next January. Cirque de Mac is uh, is happening. It's going to be on January 27th back at Broadway Studios. All the details for that are coming together. We already have four sponsors on board and there's more coming. Let's see, we've got Ecelerate, Microsoft, uh, Smile, and Project Wizards uh, helping to support the mm. party. So we certainly appreciate all of them and uh, I think there's going to be a couple others joining them as well. And of course, we'll share that with you when it comes. You folks are premium subscribers, so if you need tickets to Cirque to Mac, we will put a link in the show notes that... Uh, uh, that that you can you can use and John I'll make sure I get that link to you. But excellent, uh, yeah, because uh, you're premium subscribers, we want to take care of you. And also, don't forget, we've got that deal at the at the Intercontinental Hotel where you get an upgraded room uh, as long as you book it through our through our deal. So make sure you do that, and that that would automatically qualify you, of course, for uh, two tickets to Cirque du Mac as well. So now, what about the exclusive party in your room, Dave? Um, that's that's there's a there's a guest list of one, and it's it's me. No, even Lisa's not invited. That's right. No. Listen, at the end of a long day at MacWorld Expo, you know you know how it is. Yeah. No, some people think it's all fun and games. It's uh, it's it's taxing. It's fun, but it's it's not games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're we're because we're covering the show for for everybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, thanks, of course, to Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast and uh, for converting this to AC, and of course, all the bandwidth. Uh, thanks to Cashfly, and that's it. We got to get out of here. Thanks very much, folks. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you Monday. Until then, don't get caught. Made up.